We'll hear argument first this morning in case 06116, Limtiaco versus Camacho. Mr. Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case is properly before this Court, which should reverse under the plain language and purpose of the Organic Act of Guam. As to jurisdiction, at the time Congress amended the Organic Act to replace the certiorari jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit with direct review in this Court, the Ninth Circuit had already granted the writ of certiorari that had been timely filed and the case had been briefed, argued, and submitted. The amendment said nothing about its application to pending appeals, and someone had to decide whether and how it applied to this case. The Ninth Circuit was the proper body to do that, at least in the first instance. And until it did, this case was before that Court within the meaning of Hibbs versus Wynn. Mr. Waxman, I thought the Ninth Circuit did decide that question in another case that was, that was pending, Santos. It did decide it in Santos, Justice. Why wasn't that the time at which it was clear that the Ninth Circuit no longer had jurisdiction? Well, for reasons that we articulate, Your Honor, in a, I forget the footnote number, but a footnote in our brief, there are some important distinctions, although they turned out not to be dispositive, between the nature and position of this case and Santos. But in any event, we know from the Ninth Circuit that it did not consider otherwise, because if the Court will refer to, I believe it's page 50A or 51A of the Joint Appendix, after the Court decided Santos, it sua sponte issued an order in this case, it is on page 51A, resubmitting this case effective February 1 to the Ninth Circuit's active consideration, and shortly thereafter it filed the order uh, in this case from that, in our view, triggered the 2101C 90-day well, are, are you suggesting that the test is whether or not there's colorable jurisdiction? A hypothetical case. Suppose the statute, the federal statute, is very clear that it applies to pending cases. Would your argument be the same? Well, I, I wouldn't have the most, the strongest argument that I have in this case. I think, and the Court's cases are not clear here, but it does seem to me that in an instance, as here, where it isn't just that a party has made some application or filed a cert petition with a court, but the court has actually reached out and asserted jurisdiction, surely anything other than an amendment withdraw, an enactment withdrawing, withdrawing jurisdiction that requires anything other than merely a ministerial act, where there can be no possible confusion about what Congress intended to do, certainly anything short of that, it lies with the court to ascertain it. And here — If we if we accept that in the opinion, what is the phrase we use, colorable jurisdiction, or I mean, it's just something I made up, but is, is there some concept that we can refer to or some phrase that works to — in order to — incorporate it's, your test that you, you seem to be suggesting. I, I actually would not embrace that test. I think that in an instance, Your Honor, where a court in which properly had jurisdiction and affirmatively asserted it and issued, and I can take the court through this, a series of orders of the court following the, night, the October 19, 2004 enactment leading up to the decision in Santos and thereafter, which the Court continued to rule, 
continued to issue orders in this case, I think a good argument can be made that on a theory of constitutional avoidance, the Court ought to construe any enactment of Congress, no matter how pellucid it is, as not constituting a self-affecting reversal of a pre-existing order of the Court in which the case had been pending per order of the Court. And so I'm not sure that I would even embrace a ministerial test concept in the context in which a case is properly pending in front of a court which has affirmatively asserted jurisdiction over it. And indeed here, Mr. Waxman, may I just ask this question? I don't quite understand what the import of this uh, order on page 51A is. I, I have it in front of me. What did that do? Did, did any, was anything different immediately after the order entered than was true immediately? Yes. The yes, Your Honor. And I think you should well, I suppose you could start anywhere, but let, maybe it would be as well to start on page 49A of the, uh, of the Joint Appendix. In December 15th, remember that the Guam Organic Act was amended, I believe, October 30th, 19, uh, 2004, and it was silent as to its effect on cases that had already been filed and were pending in the Ninth Circuit. Sua sponte, the Court — well, actually, it was not sua sponte. Almost two months after Congress enacted the Organic Act, the respondent in this case, Governor Camacho, filed a motion on December 8th with the Court renewing a previous motion for the Court to expedite its resolution of this case. And Governor Camacho's affidavit in support of that motion is included in the Joint Appendix. In response to the motion, not telling the Court, hey, by the way, it's been nice doing business with you, but we have no further truck with your Court because Congress passed the statute and you are ipso facto, by operation of law, no longer in business, the Ninth Circuit issued the order on page 49A that says, no opinion in this case can issue until the case of Santos is decided clarifying our continuing certiorari jurisdiction over decisions from the Guam Supreme Court. Then turn to page 50A of the Joint Appendix. A week later, on December 22nd, the Court, sua sponte, issues an order withdrawing and deferring a ruling, in this case, pending the decision in Santos. Santos is then decided in January. And on February 1st, the Court issues an order in this pending case saying, okay, it's resubmitted to the panel. And shortly thereafter, the panel issued the order dismissing this case for lack of jurisdiction. And from that date, we filed a timely petition for certiorari. Now, the contention of the respondent in this case that the Attorney General should immediately upon enactment of the Organic Act Amendment, have also filed a petition with this Court, would do one of two things. It either would have put this Court in the position of determining the effect of the amendment at the very same time that the Ninth Circuit was doing so, which is a state of affairs that this Court has repeatedly rejected, most notably in Andrews versus Virginian Railway, or 
it would have amounted to nothing more than what this Court has called, quote, the filing of a redundant slip of paper. Well, am, am I wrong? I thought that the Attorney General of Guam did file cert in some cases that were pending. Or am I wrong about that? No, the, the Attorney — there were two cases um, in which the Guam Supreme Court issued a final — its own final ruling after the, the October 30, 2004 amendment of the Organic Act. And in that instance, the Organic Act was in effect. He filed a petition for a writ of certiorari in this Court. There were two cases that were pending in the Ninth Circuit and over which the Ninth Circuit had granted the writ, this case and Santos. And in Santos, but not in this case, the Court asked the parties to file supplemental briefs with respect to the Court's continued jurisdiction. And the Attorney General did so in this case, and it's discussed in our reply brief. Mr. Waxman, going back to what you just said, uh, isn't it third possibility, isn't the most likely possibility that this Court would simply hold the petition? If there were, if the Attorney General filed a cert petition here while the Ninth Circuit had not yet disposed of the case, this Court could have just held it because the Ninth Circuit was likely soon to dispose of it. Well, this, we, the Attorney General could have filed a petition for writ of certiorari before judgment uh, in this Court, you know, at any time prior to the time that the Ninth Circuit issued an order dismissing jurisdiction. This Court has said uniformly outside the, the special context of three-judge courts that it will not require the mere filing of a redundant piece of paper to quote um, the uh, the Colville Indian Reservation case. And it has declined to extend this, well, why don't you just file a notice of appeal in two courts? No, there's no sense in which it's redundant, though. That would have been the first piece of paper that this Court would have seen in the matter. Yes, but that is actually the, what the, this Court was referring to in the Colville Indian Reservation case and other cases in calling it redundant in the sense that there, it was identical or effectively identical to a piece of paper that had invoked the jurisdiction of another court at the same time. In, in the three-judge court context, Justice Ginsburg, although this, this court's jurisdiction in, to, to hear direct appeals in three-judge courts has been greatly reduced since the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, there are certain instances that this court has realized where it is unclear whether an appeal lies to a regional court of appeals or to this court. And it is unavoidable there that you would file a notice of appeal in both instances. But this is not a situation in which there was any uncertainty about where the petition for a writ of certiorari from the Guam Supreme Court's decision had to be filed. The Organic Act said that the Ninth Circuit has certiorari jurisdiction. The Ninth Circuit granted the petition in this case and had assumed authority over it. And so... Isn't it just the, the case, you've made it several arguments, but you have a case that's lodged in the Court of Appeals. It's not simply a petition there. They have accepted it for yes. review. So it, in the normal course, when you have a district court decision, a trial court decision, then you're on appeal and the case is fully lodged in the Court of Appeals, it's like the judgment is suspended until the appellate court is done. So Correct. you have no 
final judgment that is properly taken any place else until till that judgment is entered. I think that's the essence of your argument, isn't it? Yes, and in fact, I mean, it's it's. I don't think that, it, that anything actually turns on this in the context of this case, but it is quite significant that at the time the, there has yet never been any appellate determination of the substantive question in this case. The Guam Supreme Court considered this as a court of first instance. The original petition was filed in the Guam Supreme Court. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, at the time that the Attorney General filed the petition for a writ of certiorari, was the only place the Attorney General of Guam could go to get review of this construction by a territorial court sitting as a trial court in the first instance of an act of Congress. Does it make any difference that the review was discretionary in the Ninth Circuit? What, it, what if before the act was passed there was an appeal as of right to the Ninth Circuit? Would, wouldn't your argument be exactly the same? It would be exactly the same. We just think that, that given the fact that this is an instance in which the Ninth Circuit granted the writ of, uh, the writ of certiorari and issued both before Sant, both before the amendment and after the amendment, and both before Santos and after Santos, orders reflecting the fact that it believed it continued to have authority over this case, the, the appropriate outcome in this case is more straightforward than it might be in some other closer instances. Perhaps that you, you should go on to the merits. Thank you. And on that, I have a preliminary question, because we have a new Attorney General, and the, the question is whether the new Attorney General continues to oppose the legislature and the governor on this bond issue. Do, in other words, do we still have a case of controversy? Yes, Justice Ginsburg, we do. I have spoken personally and repeatedly with the Attorney General, who's with me at council table, who has instructed me unequivocally to continue vigorously to advocate the construction of the Organic Act that is reflected in our petition and in our merits and reply brief. I have a more basic question whether we had a case or controversy to start with. Um, this is kind of an intramural dispute between two Guamanian officials about what Guam's position should be with respect to the Organic Act. And I'm wondering why that's a justiciable controversy under Article 3. The, the cases you cited in your petition all involved uh, on its uh, only facially uh, intra interbranch disputes within the federal government, but the agencies in those cases uh, always were representing a real party in interest. United States versus ICC, the ICC was actually the railroad in whose favor the commission had ruled. Uh, why, why shouldn't we just let Guam figure out its position on its own, and then when a private party withstanding challenges something, but then we'll have a case or controversy? Well, just. Mr. Chief Justice, this is actually an a fortiori case. If you don't agree with me and you think that there really wasn't a case or controversy, then we would respectfully submit the appropriate resolution would be to dismiss and to vacate the Guam Supreme Court's decision so that the Attorney General — Well, Guam, uh, presumably, uh, you know, some state courts issue advisory opinions. We don't vacate. That's their business. It's just a question of whether we have jurisdiction to address the question in that context. Indeed. But here's the situation here, and this is why I think it's an a fortiori case. The Attorney General and the Governor of Guam are each separately elected. 
They each have non-discretionary obligations under Guam law, in addition to their obligation to interpret and, and enforce the Constitution and laws of the United States. The Attorney General cannot be removed by uh, by the governor, by Guam law, unlike the case in many of these federal executive branch intramural disputes. And she is required by Guam law in any instance in which the governor and the legislature um, attempt to um, borrow money subject to the, the, the full faith and credit of the territory to certify that such borrowing is lawful. And in this instance, therefore, she is, an, she is an, as, the, as the unremovable elected chief law enforcement of the territory, she is required both to properly apply the federal law, that the Organic Act, that constitutes Guam's constitution, and Guam territorial law, which requires her affirmatively to certify the legality of the proposed buying. Except that she is removable <clears throat> by, by election, and that is indeed what has happened. And I understand that one of the issues in the election was precisely whether uh, this borrowing authority existed or not. Uh, and if that's the case, you have a new attorney general that presumably, uh, as an original matter, would, would uh, not do what the prior attorney general did. Justice Scalia, so, the — you know, it, it, it is an intra-branch dispute that can be resolved by the electorate, essentially. There may very — it may very well occur. In fact, there, there, there either is or imminently will be a proposed additional borrowing of $123 million proposed by the governor to the legislature. And that is going to require this attorney general to ascertain Presumably prior to the time this Court — well, I won't presume, but perhaps before this Court renders a decision in this case, were it to, whether she can or cannot certify that. Now, the answer to that question will turn in the first instance. And she's, she's not going to be reelected before then. She can't be removed by the governor before then. Her position is that if she ascertains that in the form in which it's enacted, that proposed borrowing implicates, you know, constitute debt within the meaning of Section 11, she will not sign that legislation. And that, it seems to me, in, during the campaign, of course, none of this is in the record. Her position was that she would continue to pursue this litigation in the Supreme Court, which is why she's here. I, See, I guess I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean, it's one thing to say I will pursue the litigation because it would be a good thing to have a definitive answer from someone other than the governor or, or me. Uh, is it her position at the present time uh, that the position of her predecessor is correct or not? Yes, it is, it is her position that if she were presented tomorrow with a borrowing that would exceed the debt caps under the position of the Attorney General in this case, she will not sign it because that constitutes her interpretation of the law. So she adopts the interpretation of her predecessor? Correct. Okay. I have one but, question, if I can, if we should reach the merits of the case. I, I think you should reach the merits of the case. I know that. Is that is I have a question about, I have okay. a question about the merits. Okay. I have four okay. reasons why I think I, I know. Well, I'll, let me tell you my question. I'd like you to go into it. <laughs> okay. But, uh, I, I've looked up what my law clerk has and found eight states that seem roughly comparable 
those that go to assessed value, every single one of them, and most of them do, but they all have a word like assessed. The only comparable places we found are Puerto Rico, Philippines in 1916, uh, and Guam here, which don't use the word assessment, but use the word aggregate taxable value. All right, now, what, what's happened in those places? We know, we know what's happened in Guam. I can't, uh, the Philippines, 1916, Puerto Rico, there ought to be some experience there, even if we couldn't find a case. How have they treated it? You well, know? they, they, <laughs> what's happening in all those jurisdictions will certainly consume at least the rest of the balance of my Well, the mind. simple, let me, simple let me question. Just, yeah. the, the simple answer is that is the following. There are, looking first at the states, there are states that use the, the terms the valuation. There are states that use the assessed valuation, aggregate assessed valuation, and there are a few states that use tax valuation. It is uniformly the case in the states and elsewhere that the word assessed in this context is understood to refer to the valuation against which the property tax is based, whether that happens to be a place where it is full value or a fractional value. But it is also the case that at the time that the Guam Guam Organic Act was enacted, fractional valuation was a commonplace for purposes of assessing property tax. Now, in the territories — Now, try Utah — Try Iowa, try there, Illinois, there, were three states, yeah. there were three states that we discussed, Passy is one, Halsey is the other, and I can't remember the name of the other one, where they used — where the state constitution just said aggregate valuation or the valuation, and the state Supreme Court said there's no modifier for valuation, that must mean full value. There are conversely — the State Supreme Court in Fishburn in, in the Illinois context and in the Indiana context, where even that formulation, the valuation, the State Supreme Court said, come on, it is all, the debt limitation is always calculated Mr. against. Maxman, can I ask you just, just about Guam, not about the other uh, territories. Is there anything in the Organic Act that would prevent Guam from changing the assessed percentage from 35 percent to 100 or 150 percent? Absolutely nothing. So there's no, no limit in the Organic Act uh, that is of any, any real meaning. That's cool. The limit in the Organic Act, and it, it, it makes it entirely consistent with all of the other territories that I, are not that many and I will explicate, which is the uniform rule has been that the basis for valuation of property against which the debt limitation percentage is multiplied is the same as the valuation of property against which the property tax is applied. And in the territories, the Congress has used essentially two formulations. In the Springer Act, it was assessed value of taxable property. In Alaska, it was aggregate taxable value. In Guam, it's aggregate tax valuation. In Hawaii, it was assessed value. In the Northern Marianas, aggregate assessed valuation. The Philippines, which you mentioned, is a particularly instructive example because in 1902 and 1905, it was assessed valuation. But then in 1916 and 1922, it was altered to be aggregate tax valuation. 
And then the Virgin — Puerto Rico is aggregate tax valuation, and the Virgin Islands, which we've discussed, is aggregate aggregate assessed valuation. Now, the legislative histories of these provisions, including the Guam provision, are lengthy, obscure, and, frankly, have been very difficult to obtain because, in many instances, the hearings are unreported. And we have been receiving the legislative history, particularly the unpublished legislative histories of these provisions, up to and including Saturday, because in the 11 days over the Christmas holiday in which we did our reply brief, we simply could not get hearing transcripts of hearings that were conducted in 1949 in Agatna, Guam. But we are prepared to lodge the relevant provisions with the court um, for the court, and I don't want to, therefore, don't want to make any argument about it. But I don't want to say that these words and the please, please don't. <laughs> no, but you. But but the, 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 my, possible to find out this following answer in Puerto Rico, and in the Philippines after 1916, and in Alaska, were there any instances in which they issued bonds that exceeded the 10 percent? of the assessed value as opposed to the aggregate market value. They either did or they didn't. And that would be hard to find out. I think that would be hard to find out, and I don't know. I, I do know that there is legislative history with respect to the use of the word assessed and tax in this context, both in Puerto Rico and in the Philippines. I don't know about Alaska. Just on the merits, the first thing that uh, the tax authorities have to do is they have to value the property. Correct. And they're valuing it for tax purposes. So that sounds like tax valuation. Well, I'm not — our argument is that the word tax valuation has to have meaning. And the plainest meaning is the mean we respectfully submit, the most natural meaning of tax valuation is the valuation that is used by Guam for the calculation of tax. And that's true not only as a matter of plain language, but for three other reasons. First of all, as I indicated, it puts Guam in harmony with the regime that has existed in every other U.S. territory in which the value of property against which the debt limitation rate is assessed is the same as the value of property against which the tax rate is assessed. And secondly, or thirdly, that fully accords with the statutory and legislative history, both with respect to the territories and the states, that reflects that it has always been understood that tax valuation and assessed valuation are equivalent in this context, and understanding that furthers Congress's central consistent goal of restraining borrowing by territories. And finally, interpreting tax to mean full renders the word tax all but meaningless. I grant you, Justice Kennedy, that it is possible to come up with a meaning. It is not a meaning that the Guam Supreme Court adopted, but it is a possible meaning. But the Guam Supreme Court interprets, actually said in its opinion, tax has to mean something. It interpreted tax not to modify valuation, the word that follows it, but to modify the word property and to read it as taxable property, which is, with all respect, plainly wrong. There are big lenders in the United States, and those people don't fool around. They get opinions. And if they lend money 
in Puerto Rico or they lend money to, to uh, some of these places, they're going to have opinion letters. And those opinion letters are going to say whether they think, in their opinion, uh, uh, th- this is overreaching to many bonds or not. And, of course, I would think those opinion letters would say for uh, Puerto Rico what the words aggregate tax valuation mean. Now, well, they might or might not. In uh, Puerto have you, have, well, In other words, I'm trying to find ways of getting at the practice. Okay. I don't have any such opinion letters, um, and I would very much like to reserve at least a minute for rebuttal. But with respect well, to Mr. Porter, we've taken a fair amount of your time before you got to the merits, so we'll give you a couple minutes for rebuttal. And why don't you answer the — Thank you. With respect to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico happens to be a situation which, so far as we have been able to ascertain — the law actually requires that for purposes of determining valuation for application of the tax rate, the assessed rate is required to be the actual value, as is the case in the Virgin Islands. So that distinction wouldn't exist. On the other hand, in the Philippines, it is clear from 1902 on that a system of fractional valuation was in place. Now, Getting, figuring out what actually happened in the Philippines way back when, when it was a territory of the United States, has been challenging. And it may very well be that there is information, but simply, simply obtaining, for example, the, the three unpublished hearings with respect to the Virgin Islands legislation in 1949 has been actually surprisingly, surprisingly challenging. If I may reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Waxman. Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case should be dismissed for one of jurisdiction because the certiorari petition filed in this Court to review the judgment of the Guam Supreme Court was untimely. If the Court were nonetheless to reach the merits of the opinion of the case, the opinion of the Guam Supreme Court interpreting Section 11 of the Organic Act should be affirmed. There are three principal reasons supporting both of these positions. First, on the dismissal. Dismissal is required, one, because when the Ninth Circuit was divested of authority to adjudicate the merits of the case on October 30, 2004, this Court was then the only Court that could review that judgment. Ms. Brickman, Congress sometimes withdraws jurisdiction from courts, but when a case is pending, it isn't until the court issues the order. There's no automatic dismissal of the case when Congress passes an act. There is a case lodged in a court, and that court will follow Congress's directions and dismiss it. But until it does, there's no final judgment. The judgment of the Guam Supreme Court is suspended while it's subjudica before the Ninth Circuit. And then, when the Ninth Circuit acts, then there is a trigger. But until it does, there isn't. Your Honor, we respectfully disagree. We don't believe that there was any suspension of the time for filing once the Ninth Circuit was divested of jurisdiction. This Court, as long ago as the Eisenberg case, has recognized that the time for filing certiorari is suspended so long as a lower court has jurisdiction to adjudicate the merits of the case. Hibbs, we went when reinforced that more recently. What if, what if you have an ambiguous statute where it, it, it really is, is not clear? 
whether it applies to pending cases or not. What what uh, you say, if it turns out uh, after the fact that it does apply to pending cases, you are out of time if you haven't uh, immediately filed here while the case is still is still pending. No, Your Honor. That is the situation that the Court confronts in the three-judge district court cases where there have been instances in which there was a mistake made as to where the appeal should be taken. And the Court has jurisdiction to decide the jurisdiction, and those instances has vacated and remanded the order. I have to um, emphasize to this Court that in the Santos case, Petitioner requested that the Ninth Circuit remand the order to the Guam Supreme Court. And the language of this Court, what that does is it refreshes the judgment of the Guam Supreme Court so it then can be timely brought here. If Petitioner had in May fact — ask you, would the Ninth Circuit have had jurisdiction after uh, October 30, 2004, to vacate the judgment of the Guam Supreme Court and send the case back? Yes, we believe under the authority of this court and those three-judge courts, that is the solution that this court has established for precisely We did that. We would say we don't have jurisdiction, but we're nevertheless going to enter the following order, which presumably depends on our having jurisdiction, that the judgment is vacated and we're sending it back. You, th- you agree that the Ninth Circuit could have done that? Yes, Your Honor. Petitioner agreed that he asked for that relief in the Santos case. But isn't that subject to uh, gamesmanship and the parties uh, that are out of time in this court going to uh, a lower court and saying, well, just vacate and re-enter and then I can start all over again? And we've discourage that. We think not, Your Honor. In the Donovan v. Richland case, the Court made clear that you would not vacate it when it was simply a failure to obey the rules, and the Court refused to vacate and remand in that case, as we point out in our brief. This is a case that Justice Scalia was positing where there's an actual issue, a colorable question of jurisdiction. The proper course would be to challenge, and here Petitioner did not even try and litigate the question did not file any brief after Santos came down, never tried to distinguish this case from Santos. He merely waited and did not timely pursue the writ to the Guam Supreme Court, the judgment that was final at that point in time. Well, you'd say Santos, then, is, 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 is the Rubicon, not the enactment of the statute, but Santos. No, we believe in this particular instance, particularly um, with the clarity under Bruner of the divestiture of the Ninth Circuit jurisdiction here, this is not a rule of yeah. court. Well, your last argument, then, is irrelevant. I mean, if it's clear, it doesn't matter what they did before. But I'm suggesting in response to your question, Justice Scalia, that in those other situations where there may be a question that does not put the petitioner in a situation of not being able to seek review. Which the is Ninth not this case. That's correct, Your Honor. The Ninth Circuit would have been without authority to issue the order it did in Santos under your reasoning. The Ninth Circuit just was powerless because the authority had been transferred by virtue of the statute to this Court. So the Ninth Circuit was wrong in all the orders it issued. No, Your Honor. The Ninth Circuit maintained jurisdiction to decide jurisdiction. And indeed, if Petitioner had litigated the question of jurisdiction, they could have sought a writ to the Ninth Circuit and come to this Court and litigated the question of jurisdiction. If the Court had found there was jurisdiction, it could have reached the merits. If the Court had found it was not, there was no jurisdiction, it would have done what it does in the three-judge courts and say, no, you need to come directly up from the Guam Supreme Court. We vacate and remand for a fresh judgment, and then you come to the Guam Supreme May Court. I ask, Why did, how much time did the petitioners have after the statute passed? 90 days or the interval, 90 days minus what had already run? 90 days, Your Honor. We believe that the um, — Why would that be so? The timely petition to the Ninth Circuit and its grant of certiorari review suspended 
the finality of the Guam Supreme Court judgment. Once Congress, in its authority to demarcate the jurisdictions of the lower federal courts, enacted that statute, it was no, for no court to question that. It was divested of jurisdiction at that time. The Guam Supreme Court judgment was again final and it had 90 days to petition. I should say there are other cases. Eisenberg makes clear that that time is not suspended when the court below does not have jurisdiction. The Market Street Railway place makes clear that when, as a matter of law, the, um, the uh, lower court no longer can act on the case, the time is no longer suspended. And the Gypsy Oil case makes clear that the party cannot rely on a false exercise of jurisdiction by the lower court. Well, in, in this case, if it was not a false exercise in Santos, why was it a false exercise here? It was not a false exercise, Your Honor, until October 30th of 2004. At that time, Congress spoke. And what that amendment No, but it, it, it was still an exercise. Uh, it was an exercise in this case of the same authority that it was purporting to exercise in Santos, which you conceded, and that is the authority uh, to determine its own jurisdiction. And I presume that jurisdiction is determined on a case-by-case basis when a case has already been accepted by the court and is, is, as Justice Ginsburg said, sub judice. So if there was, if there was jurisdiction to determine jurisdiction in Santos, I don't see why there wasn't likewise jurisdiction to determine it here. There was jurisdiction, Your Honor. Our position is the same in both of those cases. And indeed, if that issue of jurisdiction had been litigated in this case, Petitioner could have brought a writ to the Ninth Circuit judgment and litigated jurisdiction in this case. But if the courts ultimately determined that there was not jurisdiction, it had but to go it back. Ex- ex- you know, once the, once the, the Ninth Circuit determined that it had no longer a continuing jurisdiction to do anything more than it did in, in the order that finally dismissed this, uh, the, the, the other side wasn't bound to litigate that here. Uh, all the other side is saying is that up to that point, the court was determining its own jurisdiction. And therefore, it is only when it determined that its jurisdiction no longer existed that the filing period began to run. So it seems to me that the crucial question is if it could determine its own jurisdiction in Santos, which you concede, why can't it cons- uh, determine its own jurisdiction here? It can, Your Honor, but if well, it is — isn't that what it was doing? Yes, but if it is found that there is no jurisdiction, then the party cannot have relied on that to why, suspend why the period. Why because this Court's cases make clear, um, Hibbs v. Wynn, the Eisenberg case. But those — those uh, are, are they, and, and you've, you've got me here. The, the argument here is — that the, that the uh, Ninth Circuit had already taken jurisdiction in this case. It wasn't a question of whether to accept it or not. And in those cases, Your Honor, the courts also, the um, appellate courts, were um, validly exercising jurisdiction in those cases. Yeah. And in Eisenberg, for example, it was a request to recall the remediator. It took months for the California Supreme Court to decide that case. And they say, yes, there's a standard where you can do that if there's fraud in the court. We find you don't make it, so we don't have jurisdiction. They came to this court and said, out of time, you had to have sought our review timely from the final judgment of the California Supreme Court, and you could not wait for that period of time in which the California Supreme Court decided to not have jurisdiction. If That's the, a well-established federal jurisdiction. I, I guess I'm still lost on, on the point that 
for one purpose, the purpose of the, the 90-day filing period. You're saying that uh, the, the Ninth Circuit did not have jurisdiction. But for another purpose, the determination of whether it had jurisdiction, you're saying it does have jurisdiction. Am, am I misunderstanding your argument? I don't believe so. I think that's very common. I don't see why you can have it both ways. Well, this Court has made clear, for example, in the three-judge district court cases, that this Court has jurisdiction when an appeal comes before it, decide whether or not it has jurisdiction over that appeal. When parties have made a mistake. And maybe I should say, I don't know why this Court can have it both ways. <laughs> uh, don't, don't we have to choose one analytical path or the other analytical path? No, Your Honor. I think it rests in this core idea that courts have to have jurisdiction to decide jurisdiction. But when there is and no. And then when they decide they didn't have jurisdiction, then it's retroactive. That's, a, that's what your position is. The no. Ninth Circuit has jurisdiction this whole time. But the day that it issues its decision dismissing this case, then it's retroactive back to the date that Congress passed the statute? That's what you seem to be saying. The divestiture of the jurisdiction occurred on the day that Congress's statute went into effect. What if, what if the Ninth Circuit had incorrectly held that it had jurisdiction? Would, the, would it be the same? Your Honor, that would have um, been the scenario I discussed before. The parties could have litigated that if it came to this Court and the Court found there was jurisdiction, so be it. We think it would have been a wrong ruling. And if it came to this Court and this Court reversed, that is the scenario we discussed where in the three judge district courts, when that turns out, the Court concludes we don't have jurisdiction. You needed to come up through the other route. We will dismiss vacate and send back you come up. And I have to urge on the Court there's a purpose for that. In those cases, the party is actively believing and pursuing the view that jurisdiction exists. In this case, that was not the scenario. In but fact, those cases really are not in point because there was a vast confusion in the days when there were three judge courts. Do I file a jurisdictional statement? Do I file a cert petition? Sometimes this Court said, we'll treat the jurisdictional statement as a cert petition. But those existed from the beginning. Here there was a case lodged in the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals had every basis of jurisdiction. There was nothing shaky about it. It wasn't, did they file the right paper? And then Congress does something, and the Court would follow suit. Um, it just seems to me very strange to say the Court has jurisdiction to decide whether it has jurisdiction, but if it decides it doesn't, then the date of that order is not the critical date, but you go back to the date that Congress passed the law. Your Honor, I think that this Court addressed this scenario, and one of two things could have happened. As you pointed out during Petitioner's argument, it would have been a very easy thing to file a protective cert petition. This Court is well familiar, has recognized the appropriate of protective filing, certainly in the federal habeas situation where there are mixed petitions and there's a need to go back and exhaust. Protective filing within the 90-day period would have been appropriate. And I urge, particularly because Petitioner filed a brief within that period in the Santos case, recognizing that Bruner required that there, there was a divestiture of um, Ninth Circuit jurisdiction as the day of the statutory enactment. Even if there had not been that protective filing, if Petitioner had a colorable jurisdiction argument and litigated it, this Court has made clear that once that has been determined adversely, there can be a vacator and remand back to the Guam Supreme Court so that judgment can be brought up. I would like to turn to the merits, if I could, Your Honor. 
We believe that the well-reasoned opinion of the Guam Supreme Court should be affirmed for three reasons. First, the interpretation takes full account of the text of the statute. As Justice Kennedy was mentioning before, the purpose of this is to have a debt limitation that is based on the property in Guam and the tax valuation of that property in Guam. The tax valuation is the valuation of the property that is subject to tax. This is not an original interpretation of this provision. In the Superior Court opinion from 1989 that we attached our brief in opposition, the Guam Supreme Court came to the same conclusion interpretation of this language. We think that it is an eminently reasonable and correct interpretation, particularly in light of the absence of the word assessed, which well, Congress don't you, used. Doesn't your interpretation read the word tax out of this statute? I mean, your, your position would be exactly the same if it just said 10 percent of the value of the property in Guam. No, Your Honor, that would include the tax-exempt property. That would be a much larger All right, larger so, so that's where I'm having trouble on your side. I, I can't get very far with history of other places. Apparently, I, I can understand that. Text doesn't seem to help me very much. Uh, so I thought, well, one thing is clear. What they're trying to do here is to take out of the box that you look at, take off the list, property that they don't tax. I guess a school or maybe some tax-exempt business or something. That's right, government, okay. religious. Now, their reason for doing that must be that those people whom they've exempted entirely, by statute at least, um, are not going to be much help in paying the bonds back. Well, if that's true, isn't precisely the same thing true of the two-thirds of the property that they don't take into account when they set their taxes? No, Your Honor, because, because? because that property in Guam is still securing the debt to a certain degree. It is property that must be valued for tax purposes. No, it doesn't secure it one bit. If, in fact, the tax statute says you can't take it into account when you set your taxes, just as is true of, let's say, a tax-free business of some kind. Now, Guam doesn't have to do that. It could change its statute. But so could it change its statute in respect to the school or the university or whatever the other things are that are off those tax rolls. So that was — Yes, your answer was, was, was circular. That, that, is, that assumes — uh, that, the, that the whole property is, is, is secure, but it isn't. No, Your Honor, as a matter of textual interpretation, aggregate tax valuation of property in Guam, you look to the property in Guam, and then you have to take the tax valuation. You're taking the property that is subject to tax. We believe that this is the intent of Congress also for two reasons, Justice Breyer, that addressed your issues before about um, uh, one suggestion that Guam could change this. The purpose of Congress here was to set a meaningful debt limit. That is what real value, appraisal value, does. It is an economic determination of concrete fact. Well, why does it do it any, any more than the 35 percent value? That sets a definite limit. Because that can be changed at the whim of the legislature, Your Honor, and the legislature could change that assessment to increase the debt limit and while lowering taxes and not altering any tax liability. Well, when you look at the bond much of the, with respect to much of the tax-exempt property, that can be changed by the legislature as well. But when you're looking to a bond, a debt limitation here, and you're looking at the bond market and you're looking at investors, the certainty of an appraisal value, an actual real value. Well, it doesn't have to be 100 percent. Sure. They, they could change uh, the t what you call the tax valuation from 100 from percent of the fair value 
to 150 percent. There's really much less to this case than meets the eye. I mean, uh, Guam's going to be able to fiddle with this thing no matter how you come out. We don't believe that was the intent of Congress. Well, whether, it's, whether it was their intent or not, uh, is it not the case that Guam could say all property will be valued at 150 percent of its fair market value? And we will then impose a 1 percent uh, uh, real estate tax instead of the 2 per, uh, instead of the 1.5 percent we had before. Yes, they certainly could do that as a matter of tax. We don't believe that that should alter the debt limitation that Congress enacted, and that's precisely why we believe that the Guam Supreme Court's opinion that gives a meaningful interpretation of the purpose of Congress and gives a real debt limitation is exactly should be affirmed as exactly the purpose that Congress intended. And that's why the assessed value can be so easily manipulated as not a reasonable interpretation. I also would like to address Justice Breyer's question about the various. But um, I, I, just before you get, if, if I were a bond investor, I would I would much prefer issuing bonds if it's if it's the lower value if it's the assessed value. I'm just I'm just I'm just more secure. Your Honor, the um, certainty, however, that the debt limitation is a real limitation that um, serves the purpose of Congress in order to have some kind of fiscal responsibility of the territory is what is furthered by the real limitation, having a concrete appraisal fill value as the basis for the calculation of that Well, you do have a concrete appraisal, but it's just reduced to 35 percent. But that can be changed at the whim of the legislature without any accountability to the voters because at the same time they can change the tax rate and not alter any tax liability. Well, you say without any responsibility to the voters. I mean, the voters are going to know that if the valuation is changed and the tax rate isn't, their taxes are going up. So I assume the voters are going to be vigilant to what is going on, and I assume they have telephones and they'll call their representatives. Why is this — why do you posit this sort of failure of representative democracy? Because I assume the tax rate will be changed, so it's not — there's no — there's no incentive. The tax rate is changed. They're going to call twice. No, the tax rate would be changed to be lowered to maintain the same level. So there would be no — because the legislature isn't acting to address any tax liability. They're simply — acting to manipulate the debt limitation, which seems very contrary to the purpose and any meaningfulness in the debt limitations. But they're going to know this, and and they're going to be, if they are concerned at all about it, they're going to be in touch with the representatives. Your Honor, of course, the bond um, issuance here also goes through the Guam legislature, and they are held accountable to that in the political arena. Okay. I would suggest, Your Honor, um, the question about — I uh, agree with um, petitioners' counsel about the um, certainty of determining some of this historical material is difficult and not precise, but we have gone back and looked at the contemporaneous statutes in each of these territorial jurisdictions. And as uh, Mr. Waxman pointed out, Puerto Rico, it turns out, actually uses the actual value. All of them use the actual value. Do they tax on the basis of the — Yes. This is a fractional — this is 35 percent. In the other places, do they, ta- they use as the, the value tax the 100 percent of the property yes. and then just have a lower tax rate? Yes. What, were the, fact, what, were the, what was the appraisal practice? I mean, in a lot of these jurisdictions, you have appraised value, and it turns out to be 30 percent of the actual market value. But here in um, the Virgin Islands and Alaska, federal law required that the taxes be imposed on the actual value. 
in Virgin Islands, it said your assessment will be actual value. That's why the term assessment was used in the Virgin Island debt limitation, because that was in a pre-existing federal statute that required assessment be an actual which, value. Which one? You say they've all used market value. Yes. All of them. Which of the ones uh, that use it have, in fact, an assessed value that it's a percentage of market value? None. All right. Well, that doesn't help us. But I think it does further the purpose of what um, Congress was looking to in both the Virgin Islands and Alaska, the um, requirement for various reasons that they um, impose their tax on the um, actual value um, certainly supports the reasonableness of the interpretation here, Your Honor. You know, Hawaii, in Hawaii, they use the word assessed value, and so they couldn't possibly have wanted it to be market value. But uh, I wouldn't think. And the actually the of Columbia, where, where are we in the — they used something else in D.C. They used assessed value in the Virgin Islands. The pre-existing law in Hawaii before it became a territory had tax imposed on the actual value, and subsequent to the debt limitation, the territorial law also um, put it on actual value. I would suggest, Your Honor, um, certainly if there is any um, debate that there's more than one interpretation of the Organic Act, that um, deference should be accorded to the Guam Supreme Court's interpretation of that. That is well established under this Court. Oh, but doesn't that depend? I mean, who is this provision designed to protect? Just the Guamanian taxpayers or federal taxpayers more generally? It's the Guamanians, Your Honor. It is a if matter the Guamanian of government concern. runs a deficit, where does that — where's the difference made up from? Most of the income um, and revenues on Guam come from the in- federal income tax because unlike on the mainland, the federal income tax um, goes to the Guam Treasury rather than the United States Treasury. I know that any taxes from Guam are returned to Guam. Are additional tax revenues given to Guam other than those that are derived from Guam? Other financial um, relationships with the U.S. government, yes, Your Honor. So that if the Guamanian Treasury runs into difficulty, it's made up not just by Guamanian taxpayers, but by all federal taxpayers. No, Your Honor, that's not my understanding of the, the practice. The um, uh, the encouragement of Congress setting up the independent uh, judiciary and government of Guam has also included fiscal responsibility, and part of that are the um, bond issuance and the issues that are here before the I court. I cannot imagine that if, if a territory of the United States uh, goes belly up, that the United States is not going to foot the bill. I just can't imagine that. Your Honor, we believe here that the debt limitation is a matter of uh, local concern. It is the Constitution of Guam. And we are not suggesting that the Court affirm an erroneous interpretation at all. This is a more than reasonable interpretation of the theory, well-reasoned opinion by the Guam Supreme Court. The Guam Supreme Court had before it a 17-year-old Superior Court opinion that had reached the same conclusion that was the only law out there that Guamanians had looked to for the interpretation of this provision of the Organic Act. It predated the 1993 appraisal. And... It took that opinion and did not simply adopt it, but went through and did a very detailed analysis of the text of the statute of the Organic Act, the fact that it does not include the word assessed, which was used 10 months later by Congress in the Virgin Islands. And just uh, following up on Justice Scalia's question, is there any history of the federal government having to bail out the Guam government for uh, bankruptcy or anything close to that? No, Your Honor, none whatsoever. And is there anything in the record that tells us what kind of a credit rating Guam has? No, Your Honor, I don't believe it does. Did this bond issue, I mean, 
Was the borrowing effective given the controversy between the, the Attorney General refused to sign? Did that have any consequences for whether this bond issue went through? Absolutely, Your Honor. Because of petitioner's delay for more than a year and a half in a court that did not have jurisdiction, these bonds still have not been able to issue. And petitioner responded, no, as a practical manner. The bond market will not support issuance of these bonds until attempts to undermine their validity have been um, brought to an end. And so the Guam government has been doing different means of financing, um, in a positive manner, the economy of Guam has returned because of many of the devastating um, world events have taken um, — have uh, passed in time, and the economy is recovering. The U.S. military is returning with a very large presence there. But they are still, uh, my understanding, approximately two years behind in um, getting back tax returns. Well, they are in, the real estate in that rate. case, you should, want, you should want us to exercise jurisdiction. <laughs> Decide it one way or the other. Your Honor, we believe that it should be dismissed for one of jurisdiction. The Guam Supreme Court opinion stands, and we prevail under that ruling of the Guam Supreme Court's interpretation of Section 11 of its organic. Could, could you tell me whether uh, the, the, the rate of tax is uniform throughout Guam? Is, uh, the, the rate of real estate tax, is, is it an is, is a, a, a island-wide tax, or is it, is it local and county and no, it's an island-wide tax, Your Honor. Land is taxed at one quarter of one percent, and improvements are taxed at one percent. I don't know why you just didn't uh, raise your assessed value from 30 percent to 100 percent and reduce the uh, the rate of tax accordingly. I mean, I we don't believe that Congress intended to inject itself into the workings of the local territorial tax mechanism. Well, there are various you, you policy still have, reasons. You still have the option, and and and. I'm, I'm just dying to ask the question. It may not have anything to do with the case. Why do they do this? Why do they have uh, — is it just to make everybody feel good when they, they think they're ripping off the government because they're, they're getting only a 35 percent value, even though everybody knows they'll just raise the rate if it's changed? That is exactly the kind of policy decision that the local um, governing authority makes about tax issues. And actually, petitioner in the reply brief has a foot — footnote explaining the origin of fractional um, tax valuation. Indeed, it, it seems to be consistent with some of the history also that we've um, seen that there would be informal adjustments of valuations to take into account perhaps poverty or to take into account less um, meritorious um, justifications. And the because of the uh, perception, or I believe Petitioner calls it the um, political psychology, perhaps, of having such a high rate, that is a poly decisions that different taxing authorities make. It should not mean that Guam surrenders two-thirds of its debt limitation. Congress did not use the word assessed. And it's a very difficult argument to adopt that by failing to use assessed, they limited it to an assessed value that surrenders two-thirds of the Guam territorial debt limitation, contrary to all So you talk about this, uh, the deference we owe to the Guam Supreme Court, but this is a federal statute, right? This was passed by, by Congress. Yes, Your Honor, and in the Santa Fe um, case versus Friday, with all due respect, petitioner is incorrect that that addressed local territorial laws. That was a provision of the New Mexico Organic Act that set up the jurisdiction of district courts that Congress created in New Mexico. There was a provision in that Organic Act provision of New Mexico that said the jurisdiction of those courts was as limited as law. 
That passage was interpreted in this court in Friday, looking at another federal statute and some territorial laws. I would direct the court to the briefing in the case. The opinion itself is quite brief. And when you look at the explications of the party, it simply reinforces that the court there was construing an organic act, a federal statute, and local territorial statutes. And there directly said that they should defer to the local understanding of the court unless it is clearly wrong. So we urge that that, too, should be Does that apply to all the provisions of the Organic Act? I mean, there are provisions there addressing the jurisdictional issue that uh, we're considering here as well. Do we defer to the Guam Supreme Court's view on that? Your Honor, I see my um, time is up. I may respond. I think that um, you could look to your area of uh, administrative deference, for example, under Chevron, where you do also defer to the authority of an agency, uh, the termination of an agency's determination of its own authority. The, um, the court has so held. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Uh, Mr. Waxman will give you three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I want to direct the court, in response to two questions that were asked uh, of Ms. Brinkman, I want to direct the court to two pages of the Guam Supreme Court's opinion. And I am, I'm going to summarize them for you now. But uh, for purposes of what's the difference between, in terms of bondholders, of the, the fact that certain property isn't taxed at all and certain property is only taxed at 35 percent, what's important to know here, and this is reflected on page 26A of the petition appendix, the tax roll on Guam includes a valuation of all non-taxable property. The Guam Supreme Court then has to go back and say, well, of this, approximately $183 million is exempt. So the, the, in Guam, the tax assessor and the Guam courts are treating property that is wholly exempt from taxation the same way that it treats the two-thirds of fair market value that is exempt from application of the tax rate. Secondly, in response to Justice Kennedy's questions about I mean, why are we focusing, why wouldn't bondholders focus on assessed valuation rather than the rest, and what difference does all of this make? Page 18A of the Joint Appendix, which is footnote 8 of the Guam Supreme Court's opinion, which comes in the the portion of the opinion where the Court says, look, tax has to mean something. We think it means taxable property, not tax valuation. Guam Supreme Court, in its opinion, in footnote 8, quoting from some language from a dissenting opinion in the Hawaii Supreme Court, says as follows, and I'm quoting from footnote 8. It has been argued that the use of a percentage of assessed value as a measure of the state debt limit is without significance. I'm now skipping the rest of the sentence. The people that buy the bonds are interested in the ratio of your debts to your assessed value because while all of the tax revenues of the state or the counties naturally are available for the payment of the debt, it's been customary for bondholders to look to the real property tax as their collateral. That is the authority on which the Guam Supreme Court relied, and it applies to this case, and it explains why the word assessed and the word taxable have been construed synonymously and interchangeably in the legislative history of these territorial statutes, and why assessed value is understood to be 
usually fractional value for reasons of political psychology that Ms. Brinkman addressed. But even where it's full value, it is only pursuant to a determination that for assessment purposes, full value should be used. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.